Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Nicola Yoon at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Nicola Yoon is one of the best known and best selling authors writing today in the realm of YA fiction. Her debut, Everything Everything, catapulted her to the top of the charts in 2015. Told through diary entries, text messages, and even illustrations, the story focuses around a teenage protagonist who suffers from a rare immune disease, often called Bubble Boy Syndrome but refuses to let this debilitating condition define her. Warner Brothers adapted Everything Everything into an award-winning 2017 feature film. The New York Times lauded Yoon's 2016 follow-up, Teen Romance, The Sun is Also a Star, as a deep dive into love and chance and self-determination and the many ways humans affect one another, often without knowing it. Like its predecessor, the Sun is also a star, dominated bestseller list for the better part of a year, and received its own Hollywood treatment. It also garnered Yoon a finalist nod for the National Book Award and a host of other high honors besides. Thank you. Hey, I'm very quiet, so tell me if you can hear me. Yeah, you're good. And if at any point you can't hear me, yell at me because my voice sometimes dips. Um, so thanks for coming in. What's today? Thursday and a lovely Thursday evening. I never know the time. I'm on deadline for my third book. So I'm in outer space, basically. Like I don't know what time, any, I don't know anything. But this will be good. Okay. So I'm Nicolene. I wrote. Um, Everything, Everything, and The Sun is Also a Star. And today I'm gonna to talk about three different things. I'm gonna talk a little bit about my journey to writing. I'm gonna talk about the inspiration behind the two books. And then I'm gonna talk about um, something that's really important to me, which is increasing diversity in children's literature. Okay. So a little bit about me. I grew up in Jamaica. I was born there. Um, Jamaica is a small and beautiful island in the Caribbean. It's known for reggae and something else that I'm not going to talk about because <laughs> there are children in the room. <laughs> um, so when I was 11, my dad wanted to move to America. And he wanted to move because he wanted to pursue the American dream. He wanted to be an actor. So we left Jamaica. We moved to America. And the only other time I had been to America before that was on vacation to Disney World. So 
when we were moving to America, I thought Brooklyn was going to be exactly like Disney World. <laughs> I thought there was going to be Mickey, there was going to be castle princesses. No. <laughs> that is just not how it worked out for me. Um, and I just remember like being 11 and suffering some, from such culture shock, right? So the food is different, like Jamaican food is very spicy, like hot, like heat and also just spice in general and American food was not. And I thought you guys had a really funny accent and couldn't understand like where was the patois, I didn't understand. Um, no school uniforms, I went to Catholic school and we'd wear these gray, like long gray skirts with like the big suspenders and the socks pulled up and the brown shoes. And in public school in Brooklyn, there was, you know, you had to just dress in jeans and a t-shirt. But like, I think the most shocking thing for me was like, you had such respect for your teachers in Jamaica, like you have to stand to answer questions. Um, and there was just no joking around and America was very different. Um, <laughs> I remember I stood like my first day and the kids laughed at me and I was like, what is happening? Um, the other time the kids laughed at me is when I saw snow for the first time and I looked outside and I was like, what? And they're like, pointed. And I was like, come on, America. <laughs> um, but my favorite, favorite story to tell is, so Jamaica is an ex-British colony, right? So we spell words the English way, right? So I had a spelling test and the word was favorite. And I spelt it with the U because that's how the word is spelt. <laughs> but I got it marked wrong on my test. And I was such a little nerd. <laughs> I was such a nerd. I went home, I got the dictionary, I went back in and showed it to the teacher and got my points back. <laughs> such a nerd. Did you stand while you were doing that? Probably. <laughs> um, so then fast forward a few years. Um, I, it turned out I was really good at math in high school. Um, and I always say math leads you astray. And I'll, I'll come back to that. <laughs> um, I had this really great teacher that I still remember. His name was Mr. Waterman. And he encouraged me. Um, he didn't think I couldn't do it. He's just like, yeah, you can do this. Um, so that led me to electrical engineering in college. I went to Cornell, which is in upstate New York. It's very cold there. Um, <laughs> but it's really, really beautiful. Like in the winter, the icicles form and sometimes the wind blows and they make like a little tinkling sound. It's like, it's gorgeous, but also super cold. So as I say, I was an electrical engineering major. Um, I did a lot of math and circuitry. There was a time that I understood all of these, <laughs> but I was way smarter in college than I am now because I don't remember, I don't know any of that. Um, I was one of three girls in electrical engineering, so most of my classes looked like this. But then, the lucky thing that happened for me is that one of the things about Cornell is on your senior year, you have to take a class outside of your major. Um, so I thought I would take creative writing because compared to all my math classes, creative writing was gonna be easy. And I was so obnoxious. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's totally gonna be fine. And it was so hard. Like single, the single hardest class I've ever taken. Um, but that class turned out to be really, really important to me. So at the time, I was a senior, and I was in love with this boy who did not love me back at all. Like he barely noticed my existence. Um, and I was just suffering from this terrible case of unrequited love, right? In this class, I wrote bad poetry. 
about unrequited love, and I wrote bad one-act plays about unrequited love, and bad short stories about unrequited love. You get the idea, right? <laughs> um, but my teacher, um, she like, when one of our meetings, she's like, listen, you're gonna get over this boy, and I totally did not believe her. <laughs> um, but she also said that I had potential, like she liked my writing. Um, and she was right, I mean, I did get over the boy, but I totally fell in love with writing in that class. So, you know, I will forever thank her for just saying, all she had to say is, you have potential. And it just made a huge difference to me. Um, so, as I say, I fell in love with writing. I mean, this doesn't look like love, but this is what writing is, right? <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, please. You just keep, you keep doing it. Um, so I just, I loved making up stories. So like, what is so great? Like, why do writers, you know that we always say that we suffer, and it's true, it's like, it is torture, but what is it that keeps us going? And it's just making up whole worlds, right? What I figured out is I could be anyone when I was writing. Like, so all the things I'm afraid to say, like my character could say. Um, all the things that are wrong with the world could be right in the book, right? You can create any sort of fantasy, you can, fix the ills of the world, you can explore. It was just this entire way of being that I never knew that I was interested in and then I was kind of okay at. So I got bitten by the writing bug pretty hard, like so hard that when I'm not writing, this is who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am grumpy cat. Um, so I graduated from college, yay. And then, I went from college to this, to the <laughs> cubicle farm. Um, so as I said, I was an electrical engineering major and that involves a lot of math, right? So I went to work for finance firms in Boston. Um, so one of the things, just to go back a little bit to know is that I grew up pretty poor in Brooklyn. So we lived in like this one bedroom place and um, my sister and I shared the living room. Uh, we like shopped at dollar stores. We were very poor and it was fairly unstable. And that's one of the things to know about poverty is that it's really destabilizing, right? You just don't know when the next thing is coming from. And I did not want anything to do with that, right? So I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think I could make a living. I didn't think I'd be able to support myself and afford food and healthcare. Um, and I had this degree and I could work for Wall Street firms. And I was like, I'm gonna do that. Um, and so I took a job in finance. Um, it was very practical. It was the right thing to do at the time, but I still loved writing. I could not let it go, right? Um, so then I had this great boss. So it was like a terrible job, but I had a great boss. And I said, I wanted to go to grad school. And he said, okay, you can work part-time so you can pay for grad school and go to grad school at night. So that's what I did. So I went to Emerson College in Boston and I, you know, I don't think that you have to go to creative writing school to become a writer, but for me it was really great. I learned a lot about craft. Um, I gained some really good friends who like, would read my stuff um, and tell me what was wrong with it. Um, I gained some confidence there. And I also met my husband, <laughs> the super cute David Yoon. <laughs> and we met in our very, very first writing workshop. And as an aside, he also is now a writer. His book just came out. <laughs> it's called Frankly in Love, and it's the best book ever written. 
Um, and it like debuted at number two in the New York Times bestseller list. I'm so proud of him. Uh, so then after graduation from grad school, I still went back to the cubicle farm, right? So I still didn't think I could, I mean, I wanted writing, but I still didn't think I could do it. I just, I had never met anyone who was doing this for a living. Even our professors were not doing it for a living, right? Um, so when I say I worked in finance, what did I do? I worked on a trading desk. I did analysis, risk analysis, and I did database programming. Um, and I got yelled at on a daily basis because I was on a desk. Um, and that's the job in finance, right? I basically got yelled at by people who were extraordinarily wealthy, like as my job, right? By portfolio managers and traders. It's very intense, very stressful. Like those movies about Wall Street, those are all true. Like all that stuff happens. Um, and I did that for 15 years. Um, and, but I kept writing on the side. And eventually David and I had Penny Right? I love that. <laughs> Every time I do this presentation, I get the awe uh, right here, and I go, uh, because she is the single cutest child in the world, right? She is, and I get to look at her right now. Um, but she's actually really responsible for my writing career, because there was one night when she was about four months old, and I was holding her, and like for those of you that are parents in the room, you know you have all these hopes and dreams for your kids, right? And so I was holding her and I thought, one day I'm gonna tell her she can be whoever she wants to be and you should be passionate and find something that you love and pursue it with all your heart. And I was like looking at her and I, was, I remember distinctly being in like, like the little rocking chair that you have when you're a new mom and you're, you just rock yourself to sleep. Um, and I wasn't pursuing my dreams, right? I was gonna tell her to do this and I wasn't doing it. And my brain just, I was like, what? what am I doing? I'm unhappy, I hate my job. Um, there's this thing that I know I love. I've, I'm fortunate to have found a passion and I'm not pursuing this passion. So then, because of that epiphany, I had another one, right? So I got the idea for Everything, Everything. So for those of you who haven't read it, Everything, Everything is the story of a 17-year-old girl named Maddie who has an autoimmune disorder. So she's basically allergic to the world. She's been stuck in her house for 17 years and she can't leave. And then one day, a super cute boy moves next door <laughs> and everything changes because super cute boys always change everything. <laughs> so she's stuck in, but the reason I got that idea in the first place was because I was one of those new moms that was so nervous all the time, right? I was like completely overprotective. I thought, you know, she's gonna eat dirt. She's gonna crawl out of my house. She's like, these terrible things are gonna happen. I was so nervous in those first few months. Um, and I was like, what if I have to take care of her this way forever? Like when she's 20, I still have to like get the pacifier out. Like I was like, yeah. and then, so I started thinking about it from the mom's point of view. And I was like, what if there was a girl that you did actually, who actually required taking care of? the way you take care of an infant for 17 or 18 years. And that is where the idea for everything, everything came from, basically out of my neuroses, right? Being <laughs> <laughs> a new mom. Um, so after I had this idea, I had these two epiphanies, right? I had the epiphany, like I'm not pursuing my dreams and I had this idea. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna write this story. But I had, I had that full-time job, right? And there was, and I hated it and I needed out. So, 
I wrote Everything Everything from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. over the course of three years. And every time I say that, people say, how did you do that? And they go, I hated my job. I really did. I was powerfully motivated by this idea that I really had to try to like, you know, get the thing I wanted, which was to be able to write for a living. Because I felt my soul leave my body every time I walked into my office and I wanted my soul back. Right. So it wasn't so hard to get up, you know, like I just wanted it. Um, so four to six a.m. for three years. And I started when Penny was about four months old. And I write by hand, so I don't know how many notebooks that is, like 10 or something. Um, but I write by hand, and then I type it in, and that's how one thing led to the other. Um, and I thought now I would just take a break and do a little reading from Everything, Everything. It's a very short passage. So like I say, it's about Maddie. She's been stuck in our house. The boy moves next door. His name is Ollie. He's very cute. Okay. And this chapter is called, Madam, I'm Adam. Sometimes I reread my favorite books from back to front. I start with the last chapter and read backward until I get to the beginning. When you read this way, characters go from hope to despair, from self-knowledge to doubt. In love stories, couples start out as lovers and end as strangers. Coming of age books become stories of losing your way. Your favorite characters come back to life. If my life were a book and you read it backward, nothing would change. Today is the same as yesterday. Tomorrow will be the same as today. In the book of Maddie, all the chapters are the same. Until Ollie. Before him, my life was a palindrome, the same forward and backward, like a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, or Madam, I'm Adam. But Ollie's like a random letter, the big bold X thrown in the middle of a word or phrase that ruins the sequence. And now my life doesn't make sense anymore. I almost wish I hadn't met him. How am I supposed to go back to my old life, my days stretching out before me with unending and brutal sameness? How am I supposed to go back to being the girl who reads? Not that I begrudge my life in books. All I know about the world, I've learned from them. But a description of a tree is not a tree and a thousand paper kisses will never equal the feel of Ollie's lips against mine. That's it. And it just get some water here. So, so I got really lucky after that book came out. Um, the book was optioned by MGM, and then it became a movie starring Mick Robinson and Amanda Stenberg, who are ridiculously attractive people. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I remember the first day I walked out the set, and do you know how sometimes you get to a place and you're not quite ready yet? You're just like, you need to like take a breath. But I walked in and they were right there. And I walked and I was like, oh my God, how beautiful you are. Like, they're <laughs> absurd looking in real life. You're like, how do you even look like that? But it is. So on the first day on set, there's a picture that comes right after this one that I didn't put on the slideshow where I'm really bawling my eyes out. But this was in, it's called Video Village where the director stands. Um, and I was watching um, the actors and they were in a plane scene and they said my words and I just started bawling. I just lost it. Um, and my little girl is, she's actually here, like there, <laughs> out of frame. And 
And David was there and she said, why is mommy crying? And David said, those are tears of joy, honey. And to this day, like years and years later, Penny always says that when she's like crying for something happy, she's like, they're tears of joy, mommy. <laughs> um, and you know, it was such a great experience because one of the things I got to do was to show my little girl that you can make art and it could become this other thing, you know? Um, yeah, I, I cried a lot. <laughs> And then we got to do a cameo. So if you've seen the movie, we go by in like three seconds. But we were on the beach and we filmed in Mexico because part of the book takes place in Hawaii. So in Mexico is much cheaper to film in than Hawaii. So we filmed in Mexico for Hawaii. But I'll tell you a little story about the cameo, right? So like I say, it's like a three second scene. It took 45 minutes to film in. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because they were filming on a drone, right? So like a camera on a drone, and the drone's flying by. Well, my little girl was right here, and every time it goes by, she went <laughs> <laughs> The director is like, Penny, don't look at the camera. <laughs> so they would cut, roll, and they would start again. <laughs> 45 minutes, <laughs> three seconds, it's great. <laughs> Teaser still about that. I'm like, you made us take 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and this is the movie tie in cover with the ridiculously attractive people. Um, okay, so then my second book is The Sun is Also a Star. Um, and this one is about a poetic boy named Daniel. He's trying to convince this like, very science minded, practical girl named Natasha to fall in love with him over the course of 12 hours in New York City. And the reason they only have 12 hours is because um, Natasha's family <coughs> is being deported at the end of the day. So this one was inspired by Carl Sagan. Do you guys know Carl Sagan was? Cosmo. Yes, yes. So I went to Cornell, right, and he lectured there. And I remember I went to one of his lectures and I just thought he was the greatest thing, right? Because he could take these like very big, complicated scientific concepts and humanize them, right? He could tell you why you should care. Like he says, we're all made of star stuff. That's so beautiful and poetic, but also true and really complicated science, right? So he was so good at doing that stuff. Um, but my favorite quote of his is, if you wish to create an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe, right? And what he's saying there is that we're all connected, right? Like, everything leads to the next thing. Um, and what I wanted to try to do with this book is show how these two main characters fall in love and show all the things that push them together, right? So if they're the apple pie, then all the things in the universe that are sort of pushing them together are pulling them apart. And one of the things I like to talk about is like, like say you're in Starbucks, say you're like getting ready to go to work, you're going to Starbucks for coffee before you go to work, right? And you're tired, it's been a long morning already. You get into Starbucks and the barista's there and the barista says, oh, nice tie, right? And so you cheer up a little bit because no one gives compliments anymore and that was really nice, right? So you feel a little bit better. You go across the street to your office and because you're feeling a little better, you hold the door open for someone and she'd been having a crappy day, but now she's feeling a little good because no one ever holds the door open anymore. Right? And you get to talking a little bit, and maybe you get in the elevator and you ask her out, and then 
two and a half years later, you're married with three children. (laughs) (laughs) Math doesn't work. (laughs) But do you feel me? Like, I feel like if we could all pay attention to how we affect each other, like, we are affected by the lives of strangers, right? We're affected by what happened to them earlier that day. We're affected by the histories of strangers. Um, And I think that if we all stopped and took a breath and took a moment, then you know, we could see that we're all connected and we could see that we have more in common than we think we do. Um, anyway, that was what I was trying to capture with this book. And now it seems like a good time. I'll just read the opening of this. This is from the prologue. Carl Sagan said that if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. When he says from scratch, he means from nothing. He means from a time before the world even existed. If you want to make an apple pie from nothing at all, you have to start with the Big Bang and expanding universes, neutrons, ions, atoms, black holes, suns, moons, ocean tides, and the Milky Way, Earth, evolution, dinosaurs, extinction level events, platypuses, Homo erectus, Cro-Magnon man, etc. You have to start at the beginning. You must invent fire. You need water and fertile soil and seeds. You need cows and people to milk them and more people to turn that milk into butter. You need wheat and sugarcane and apple trees. You need chemistry and biology. For a really good apple pie, you need the arts. For an apple pie that can last for generations, you need the printing press and the industrial revolution and maybe even a poem. To make a thing as simple as an apple pie, you have to create the whole wide world. So I write by hand. So these are, this was only seven notebooks because there are not any drawings in this book. Like everything, everything has all those drawings. So it like took a lot more notebooks to do. So then I got lucky again and it got optioned by Warner Brothers and MGM. that's Yara Shahidi and Charles Melton, who are, look at these people, why? <laughs> so, Charles Melton doesn't like really like shirts. <laughs> no one tweet this. <laughs> but, like, there was one time on the set where he was like wearing this shirt and he just like ripped it. And Dave and I were like, what is happening? Like, why are you doing this? Um, that's something you know. He doesn't like shirts. He rips his shirt and he's really attractive. <laughs> Here's the movie time cover. And there's me on set crying again. <laughs> um, and this time Penny understood why I was crying. And then we got to get all dressed up and go to the movie premiere. And look how cute my kid is. <laughs> And David, too. They're so adorable, and they're exactly alike. And they just make fun of their mom all the time. (laughs) Me all the time. All right, so that's my journey to writing. And now I'm going to do some writing advice. This is the blank page, right? This is is actually one of my notebooks, because I write by hand. But mostly, probably, you guys are going to be looking at a blank screen. And it's the most incredible thing and the most terrifying thing, right? It's incredible because the blank page could be anything. You could make any story up. And it's the most terrifying thing because 
It could be anything. You could make any story up, right? And that is scary. So we want to go from those blank notebooks to books on the shelf. And you have to start with the blank page, right? You have to conquer the fear of beginning, which was a big fear for me when I was a younger writer, right? The problem is you want to write it perfect the first time, except for no one writes it perfect the first time, right? So you have to write that first draft, and you have to just let it be miserable, like a miserable experience that, like it is for me, right? So, and the part that I find the hardest is the doubt, right? So usually I start off pretty sort of confident, I knew where I'm going, but then I get to the middle, and it's like this endless ocean of doubt, right? And no matter how many times I tell myself that doubt is part of the process, it still feels terrible. But doubt is part of the process. Like you just will, you're just gonna think it's the worst. You're gonna be convinced you're the worst writer in the world and nothing more terrible has ever been written. And that's part of writing. You just gotta make it through. Um, which is what I told myself for the book I'm writing right now. <laughs> like, just make it through, you can fix it. Um, so make it through that first draft, right? The other part is find a community of writers that you trust. Find kind people and then find people who, whose writing that you respect as well, right? Don't find anyone who's gonna be brutally honest with you because that's just code for being mean, I think, right? Someone who will read your work and be honest with you, but kind about it. Um, so find that community, they're invaluable. David reads the first draft of anything I write. Um, and you know, he loves me, so he's really nice to me. <laughs> um, the other thing I will say is that don't try not to get distracted while you're writing because when I was a younger writer as well, what would happen is I'd be in the middle of something, and, you know, you get to the doubt and it's really hard, and I had another idea, and I would start that instead, right? So we get distracted by the shiny new thing. Um, but no one publishes half a book, right? You gotta get to the end. After you get to the end, you get your friends to read it, you revise it. Revision is where books are made, right? I have a career not because I'm good at first drafting, it's because I'm good at revising. That's it, right? Like I will get through it and then my editor, who's much smarter than me, will give me notes and I will revise. The first version of both of these books, terrible. Like no one, you would never believe that. People like these. They were really not, not good at all, but I revised them and I revised them and I revised them. It's just part of the process. The other thing that you have to do for writing, I think, is to read, right? You gotta read everything. Um, I think, for me, that's what works, right? I'm a writer because I'm a reader. That's how I started, right? I just, I still to this day read at least two books a week it just, it's like breathing for me. I just gotta consume them. Um, but I think the really important thing here is to read everything and not to judge yourself for the things that you like. I think we're really, really good as a society at judging people and putting them into boxes and stereotypes, you know? Like, if you're a boy that likes romances, read them. It's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. And the girl who likes, you know, stuff that blows up, that's fine, read those. And sci-fi, and you can even read the classics if you have to. <laughs> um, but I mean, and I love both these books to be clear. 
Um, but my, my best piece of writing advice is more philosophical. Um, I think that we ourselves and the country in general is really good at putting people into boxes, you know, and telling them who they should be. But I think you gotta let your freak flag fly, right? <laughs> the thing that is weird about you and the thing that you're sort of shy about, that's the stuff that makes your book different than anyone else's, right? That's the thing that makes it interesting. That's why if I gave the entire room an idea and said, write me a couple of paragraphs, you'd write entirely different things, right? So let that weird part of you shine, like protect that part. That's the part that's really interesting. Okay, so then the last thing I'm gonna talk about is increasing diversity in children's literature. So when I was a kid, um, I didn't really see myself in books, right? The first time I got to see a girl that looked like me was when I read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I still remember how surprised I was that a black girl could be the main character in a story. Like I hadn't read anything and I was so surprised that it was about her and her interior life. And she had agency. Um, the other thing that really influenced me or surprised me was this movie. I don't know how many of you know this, <laughs> um, but I saw myself in this movie too because my entire college experience was like guys like this, right? We were, all, I mean, I was an electrical engineering major. We're a bunch of nerds. We were goofy. We were not stereotypes. We were just like everyone else. And this movie showed that, hey, they didn't stereotype these characters. They're just these normal goofy kids. So when we talk about diversity, like I always, it's always like this big political discussion, right? It's like headlines, it's policy, um, people get sort of nervous and entrenched. But when we talk about this, what we're talking about is personal stuff, right? It's always, always personal. In Everything, Everything, the main character, Maddie, is half, Jap half Japanese and half African-American. She looks like that because Penny looks like that. She's like, just my look, that's it. That's totally personal, right? I didn't want Penny to have my same experience of not seeing anyone that looked like her in a book. So I wrote her into a book, right? I mean, you can't get more personal than that. Um, when we were on the movie set with Amanda, the first thing Penny said to her was like, oh, you look just like me. And, and she said it, like, unprompted, and I, you know, I was crying, yes. <laughs> I was more crying. Um, and then the sun is also a star. Natasha is about to be deported. She's an immigrant, right? So there are immigrant issues in that book. Well, I'm an immigrant. Like, I dealt with immigrant issues. That's personal, right? Um, one of the th interesting things that has happened to me since I wrote The Sun is Also a Star is I met this one guy and he said the book made him think about immigrant issues differently. And I was so, I was like, that's amazing. You know, I'm so glad that this, this personal story changed your mind about something. So why include diverse characters, right? Um, there's this professor at Ohio State University, her name is Rudine Sims Bishop. And she talks about these two types of stories in the world. There's these mirror stories and window stories, right? So mirror stories are the ones that reflect your cultural reality, right? It's like looking in a mirror and you see yourself reflected back at you. They help you understand yourself. They help you locate yourself in the world. 
that tell you what's possible for people that are like you, right? But imagine if you've never read stories about yourself. Then you start to believe that you don't exist, or your stories don't matter, right? So what if you see the same kinds of stories about yourself, right? What if you just see stereotypes? Like, how many times can you see the sassy black girl? Nothing wrong with the sassy black girl. But there are girls who are black who are not sassy. I have never been sassy. <laughs> and the other problem with like the sassy black girl character is that it's all that character ever is. The, the stories never dive in and show her entire life. She never gets the full measure of her humanity, and that's the problem, right? It's just a stereotype. Um, or the Asian character who's really good at math and science. My husband is terrible at math. He's so bad. He don't even know, <laughs> right? He's not good at all. Like, I do the finances. Um, so then, window stories are stories that offer you a view into someone else's experience, right? You read about someone else for a different race, culture, economic class. And the wonderful thing about these stories is they teach you empathy, right? Books breed empathy. It's hard to, if you read 300 or 400 pages about someone who's not like you, you start to understand them. And it's hard to hate what you can understand, right? Books breed empathy. So it's important to read outside of your sort of neighborhood. The last thing I want to talk about sort of with respect to diversity is I, I travel a lot, talk to a lot of booksellers and librarians, um, and they always sort of ask, where do you shelve like diverse books, right? Or issue books. So an issue book is a book where if it's about a gay character, then it's about coming out and the sort of the struggles of coming out. Um, and a non-issue version of that would be like the character happens to be gay and it's also, you know, the magical wizard kid who's going to save the world, right? <laughs> the story is about saving the world, but the character is gay, right? Um, and I think that we still need both of those books because we live in the world, right? Um, and I think they're both really important. I think issue books can save lives, right? So if it's a story about a gay kid who's in a town where, you know, people are persecuting for being gay, or his parents are, and you know, you pick this book up from the shelf and you're gay and you read the story to the end and you see that maybe the kid makes it out of the bad situation, right? That can save your life, literally, right? You can say, you can read this book and say, there's hope, I'm gonna hold on, right? Um, but a non-issue book saves your life in a different way, right? It's sort of a more like a metaphysical, you get to be the hero of a story, right? You see like the gay kid who is the, the boy wonder, and you go, oh, that could be me, right? So both of these stories are important. I think we have to shelve these books in both places. Like you put them in the issue section, but put them in the general population. Um, and then obviously there are books that do both, right? I would love to never have to give the talk about increasing diversity in children's literature again. That is the goal, but we're still here in this place. Um, and so I always talk about it so that we can try to get to the place where we know it's not a problem anymore. We can go, yay. <laughs> um, so the last thing I'll say about this is, why do we include diverse characters? Because it's our job as writers to tell the truth. And the truth is we live in a big and beautiful and diverse world. And the truth is the world is better 
because of the diversity and not just for the food. And <laughs> the truth is, everyone deserves to see themselves as the hero of a story. Everyone should get themselves to see, the chance to see themselves as the boy wizard. With that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Nicola Yoon and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what authors Nicola Yoon likes to read. Well, okay, so young adult-wise, um... I mean, I love Jacqueline Woodson. I love Jason Reynolds. I love fantasy too, so I love Renee Adier and Sabah Tahir. Um, I love Angie Thomas. There's so many, like, I can't believe I get to write right now with all these writers who are writing, because there's some incredible YA being written, especially um, right now. What else have I read? I mean, my husband, um, David Ian, I like, I, I'm a genuine fan. Like one part of the reason I fell in love with him in grad school is because he's such a great writer. This audience member asks how Yoon comes up with the titles for her books. So for everything, everything. I mean, it's been different for every book. For everything, everything. It was a chapter title, and my editor said, "Why don't you just make this the book title?" So as I say, she's much smarter than I am. Um, the Sun is also a star. I had finished, and. I had sent maybe 4,000 titles over to my editor, and she hated all of them. Um, and then one night, I was in my living room, and I was like, I'm just going to read some Carl Sagan stuff. I'm just going to like reread some old papers, because it's about him anyway, really. Um, and I found this quote where he was so upset because some of his grad students did not know the sun was also a star, and he was like, pissed off about it. And I was like, ah, the sun is also a star, and that was it. It was like one of those. Um, but both of those were at the end. For my current book, I actually know the title. Um, I mean, it's done and I'm revising, but I knew the title halfway through, which has never happened before. Um, you know, it's like hard work and also alchemy, right? It's just, like, it just sounds right in my head. I know it when it's right. And that's it. You know. Yeah. This question is about Yoon's writing process. I am like a loose outliner, so I, I believe in three-act structure, like everyone, like all Western, like most Western books are a three-act structure, right? So I do a loose outline, it's like basically bullet points, so I know basically what's happening in each chapter, but my husband, for instance, is really detailed, like he will map out like chapter by chapter, and I can't do that because I just won't write it then, because then I know the whole story and I just, I'm not interested, but you know, you just like, Something has to pull me through. It has to be like a process of discovery. Um, but I also have friends who will not have any outline at all. You know, like very successful, well-published people will just start writing a book with no roadmap. And I'm, I don't know how they do that, <laughs> but they do. It works for them. Um, I always say that the, the, the best method is the thing that works, right? Like whatever gets you to write the book, do that. Yeah. This audience member wonders why it's important that Yoon's characters take such a long journey to reach their intended destination. 
So it's definitely, I've been a late bloomer my entire life, right? I was late to everything, late to writing, late to everything. Late to get married, late to babies. We waited 10 years before we had a kid. The whole time I was like, no, I don't want a child. And then one day we went to the Bahamas and this Bahaman lady said to, said to us, why don't you have a child? And we said, it's gonna be too difficult. And she's like, it's not, it's gonna be fine. And my husband changed his mind and he's like, let's have a kid. But it took us 10 years. So I think probably because I'm late to everything. Um, but I also think that life is kind of like that, right? I mean, I think that we have a plan. Um, and sometimes, like, I, in five years, I want to do this. But maybe in five years, you're not ready, right? Maybe all this other stuff needs to happen first. Um, I always think I wish I had gotten to writing earlier. But I don't know that I would have written the books that I wrote had I gotten into earlier, right? Maybe I needed to spend 15 years doing finance. I definitely needed to have Penny before everything, everything came. So I think life is kind of like that anyway. Our next question is if Everything, Everything was Yoon's first book, or did she try publishing other pieces before that? You know, I said I worked in finance for 15 years, but I had been writing the whole time sort of on the side, like short stories, um, in poetry, um, I wrote an entire book that will never go anywhere. Um, not of poetry, and a whole novel that no one will ever see it because it's bad, um, like really bad. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I wrote a lot in the intervening years, um, and I've written stuff since um, since these books that will never go anywhere too, right? So like, it's always, you know, I think that especially when I meet aspiring writers, they think you, uh, a book comes out and you've made it, right? But it's always new, right? You're still, every book is new and every book has its own challenges. And some books just don't work. Like I have written a book since this, since these two books that, that didn't work and, and just never going to, do you know? So it's always, you always have to sort of dig deep and find the next thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, writing's hard, but also awesome. <laughs> Another audience member asks about Yoon's involvement in the film adaptations of her books. Yeah, so for Everything, Everything, um, I met with the screenwriter before, so he like asked a lot of questions. And then one of the things you know, that's strange about movies is that a lot of stuff gets rewritten on set, which is like, kind of weird and you don't know that until you're like in this process. Um, but the director of Everything Everything is this like, Jamaican Canadian woman and we got along like a house on fire. Like we were, <laughs> we just mind melded. And she's a writer. And um, so when we got to set, she would, or you know, like when, we, when I was just at home, she would call and we would talk about stuff and that was really great. Like I felt really part of the process. Um, and then for Sun, I talked to the director before, I talked to um, Tracy Oliver, who wrote the screenplay before. Um, you know, I think the thing to that was so hard for me, especially at the beginning, is that it's not the book, right? So I remember that when I read Everything, Everything for the first time, I was like, what is this? I was like, this is not the book. It's totally different. <laughs> and then a few revisions in, there was a scene that he wrote that I didn't write in everything, and it's such a good scene. And I wish I had written it. I was like, oh my God, you were smart. Um, and so that's when I started appreciating it as a different piece of art. 
And that's really great, right? Because now there's um, more art about the characters that I love in the world. And so I really started to appreciate it then. This question is how Nicola Yoon is able to edit pieces out of her books. You know that, do you know that phrase, kill your darlings? Right? So sometimes like, you, I will write a whole passage just because it's pretty, but actually it does not advance the story and it's not something the character would do or say. You gotta edit that stuff out. You really do have to just get rid of Like I can think of one that's in my current version and I have to kill it. I love the sentence, but it has to go, right? Um, and you edit for structure, right? I, my first big edit is always just like pacing. Um, you know, like usually it's like a puzzle piece, right? Like get, I always think of it like, and I gotta move stuff around. Um, and so the first revision is always huge. It's like a, lifting a very heavy weight. Um, and it's always structural, just like you gotta shift things. Um, you know, and, and also I do different passes, right? So the first pass is just sort of plot. Um, by the second pass, I know more about the characters. By the third pass, you know, maybe I'm like looking at the language a little bit more. Um, sometimes I notice the themes, but I don't actually always notice the themes. Like I will go to events and someone will like, did you know that you did this? And I go, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally meant to do that. <laughs> Not at all. Like people like are teaching son and like I saw this like teaching guide and they're like, look at all these themes. And I was like, yes, look at that. <laughs> like some of it you think of, but some of it you really just, it's just in your subconscious, right? Um, but you know, there is a theme pass. And I don't mean like I'm doing this, like now I'm going to do this, but you know, the further along you get in revision, the more refined the book becomes, you can focus on different parts. This audience member inquires how the covers are created for her novels. I love them. I am so lucky, but I have no like voice in the cover. I mean, if I, if I see something that I hate, I get to say I hate that. Um, but so far I've been so lucky. So everything, everything is done. Um, by these women artists who usually do giant murals. They're like out of England. Um, and the neat thing about that cover is that all the stuff on the front is actually in the book, right? So everything is on the cover. And so she's, th those artists are smart, right? I mean, that's really cool. Um, and then The Sun is Also a Star is done by this woman named Dominique Fowler, and she's Australian and she does string art. So that cover actually, I have it the original piece and it's, yeah, it's insane. It's huge, it's like big, big. And it's on the wall in my office and it took her 300 hours to make it. And it's all these nails and she strings the art and then they photograph it. So the crazier thing about that is Sun is in about 30 countries and they translate it and she makes one for each country and they take a picture. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like the piece is so beautiful. I should actually put, put, maybe put it in the slideshow. It's so pretty. There's a video on my Instagram of um, a time-lapse video of her making it, if you want to see it. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if it was difficult for Nicola Yoon to find a publisher. Yes. Um, I mean, I will say yes and no, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, ha I went to graduate school this, with this woman named Wendy, 
um, and we became friends. And she found an agent before I did, right? And when I was ready to write everything, everything, I went to, I called her and I was like, can you introduce me to your agent? And then she did. And the agent said, what have you got? So I had 15 years of working in finance and 15 years of writing to show her. And I chose my best. I gave it to her, along with the first 60 pages of everything, everything. So was it difficult to find a publisher? Well, it took me 15 years of writing to have something to show her. But once I showed her everything, everything, she took it out to publishers and they, um, a lot of publishers were interested right away. Um, I always say that you have to, it's like you make your own luck in a way, but it's not true, right? I mean, you have to get, like, publishing is not like a meritocracy, right? I mean, good books, there are brilliant books out there that no one ever buys and no one ever reads, right? And that's just like life, right? And they're like terrible books that everyone's reading. You're like, oh God, how are you reading this book? It's terrible. But that's not what it's about, right? If you're in the in-between is, you get ready for someone to pay attention, right? So when that agent called me up, I had all this stuff to give her. Um, imagine if I hadn't been writing for like the 15 years before, then nothing would have happened, right? So I was lucky that I knew Wendy and she was so kind to introduce me to her agent, but a lot of it was hard work too because I had been working for this whole time, right? It's a long answer to your question. <laughs> Okay, I think we're out of time. Thank you, guys. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Nicola Yoon. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Ingrid Rojas Contreras at Dakota County Library, Wentworth. Colombian-born Ingrid Rojas Contreras is author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, one of 2018's breakout fiction debuts. Based in part on the author's own experiences growing up in factious Bogota, Contreras' story is set against the backdrop of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar's shadow reign over Colombia. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in club book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.